You're listening to Do South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. E-cigarettes were first made available in 2011. By 2019, rates of e-cigarette use among high school students had risen to over 20% across North Carolina, and more than 6% of middle school students were using e-cigarettes. For years, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has worked to promote education and prevention efforts around e-cigarette or vape use. Here with me to discuss some of those efforts is Dr. Kelly Kimple, Senior Medical Director for Health Promotion with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Division of Public Health. Dr. Kimple, welcome to Do South. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, between 2011 and 2019, as I spoke about, you know, youth vaping in this state just grew exponentially. Can you talk a little bit about um, what may have accounted for all that growth? Yeah, well, really since about uh, 2014, e-cigarettes have been the most commonly used tobacco product among youth. I think partly this was likely due to the device shapes like a USB flash drive or a pen or other similar devices that can be used discreetly. And they even came in fun flavors that appeal to youth. They also may have high nicotine content, which is extremely addictive. And so we saw between 2017 and 2018, there was a substantial increase in e-cigarette use by middle and high school students which is what resulted in the FDA and the U.S. Surgeon General declaring youth e-cigarette use an epidemic. You know, with those numbers seeming so high, so now we're post-pandemic, I wonder what the most recent numbers are. Like, have we seen a decrease at all in the rate that middle and high school students vape? Well, e-cigarettes remain the most popular tobacco product, Mm. but there's been a slight decrease in the number of middle and high school students who vape. Um, I think the most important point really is that the rates of youth vaping are still too high. The most recent data we have from our 2023 National Youth Tobacco Survey showed that more than 2.1 million youth currently use e-cigarettes. I was wondering, do you know, I guess nationally, where does North Carolina sit? Because I know when I looked at the survey, one of some of the latest numbers, it said one in eight, you know, high school students currently use a tobacco product in North Carolina. Yeah, well, I have the national data um, in front of me. And I think we what we have seen is that, um, you know, in 2019, it was about 27.5 of high school students that were using e-cigarettes. Um, since about 2021, that rate's fluctuated between 10 and 10 and 14 percent. Um, but with all these surveys, what's important to keep in mind is, you know, there are um, things like the pandemic and how change uh, changes in the survey and how it was administered. It can sometimes make it difficult to compare data from recent years. Mm, I, I think about, you know. I've walked by a lot of different shops, you know, in different downtowns and actually some places where the downtowns weren't even robust until you get to one of these stores that has, it seems like, every type of tobacco product there. So I wonder if you could speak to, like, really, how does vaping work, you know, and where can you purchase it and um, and really the age, um, the age restrictions on purchasing um, vapes. I guess is that what, even what yeah. you call them? You're like I'm trying to I'm trying to pretend I like I know, 
you know, what this is. <laughs> yeah, well, there's all sorts of names I know we could uh, go over, but for the most part, you know, how do they work? E-cigarettes contain a battery and a substance that is called an e-liquid, also known as vape juice. Um, and that liquid can contain nicotine, flavorings, other ingredients. And then the battery heats that liquid up that creates an aerosol, and that person then inhales that aerosol into the lungs. Um, as far as, you know, where they're purchased, pretty much, you know, where you go get cigarettes or other uh, tobacco products, you can get e-cigarettes. They're sold in convenience stores. There's vape shops, tobacco shops, other retail environments. I like think I see stores. gas stations. Yeah, I see gas stations yeah. a lot. <laughs> and online. Um, some people go online and are able to get those. I'm sure you probably heard this when some folks would say, you know, are definitely passing this information on that really vaping was considered to be like a healthier alternative to smoking cigarettes. So how has messaging around that changed? Well, what we can say is initially when things were coming on the market, um, you know, there was um, a lot of marketing to go along with that, but I think the public health message has always been clear, and that's that nicotine use is not healthy no matter how it's consumed. So nicotine is highly addictive. Um, vaping poses serious and avoidable health risks. It can harm the adolescent developing brain, which continues to develop into the mid-20s expose youth to chemicals or other um, hazardous in ingredients and can um, even increase the likelihood that they'll continue to use tobacco products or even other substances into adulthood. I think the other thing that's important to keep in mind, especially with our youth, is that it can affect learning, memory, their moods, and attention. Um, and so all of those things are important to keep in mind and knowing that nicotine, no matter how it's consumed, is not a healthy alternative. Mm. Are there some some common misconceptions, though, about vaping that definitely your department is trying to dispel? Yes, definitely. And I think now, um, you know, for adults, the Surgeon General reported that e-cigarettes may have the potential to reduce risk for current smokers if they've completely transitioned from what we think of as regular cigarettes to e-cigarettes. But what we found is that a majority of people are using both. Mm. You know, when I look at the some bullet points from the, the youth tobacco survey, this was startling to me. It said, what, 25%, and I think this is for North Carolina, 25% of high school and 33% of middle school tobacco users find it hard to get through the school day without vaping. Yes, that is startling data when we think about how many youth are using these products and how many youth are struggling with addiction to the nicotine um, that they have through these products. When we think about, I guess, vaping, and we're talking about teenagers, we're not talking about adults or young people in college. So I just wonder, what are some of the challenges that parents face? Because, you, you know, I'm a parent and... You know, I hope I didn't <laughs> notice, you know, if I, I feel, I don't know, who knows what my kids hit for me. You know, I just wonder, you know, how do parents, how, what, what help do they need in really addressing the dangers of vaping? 
Yeah, well, I know there's there are struggles with parenting for sure, but I think one thing is clear is never too early or too late to start having conversations, especially with youth on the on the dangers and harms of of e-cigarettes and other tobacco products. Um, and, um, and having open conversations, I think, um, also trying to educate not only parents and, and we have resources that we share that kind of help through that conversation, but educating schools, the community and others on the harms and ensuring that they understand a, how big of a problem this is among our youth and B, um, what we need to do, uh, to prevent it. Maybe, I guess, the health risks part of it, you know, just, um, you know, I don't know if some are hidden that maybe young people just, you know, can't see right away or feel right away. But are we um, are we seeing young people getting sick because of vaping as much or, you know, I'm just thinking about their health. Yeah, well, I, I think, as I mentioned, it definitely is not good for their health. And so um, they may not be as, you know, um, obvious. So, you know, I mean, the, the addiction, the as you mentioned, they can't get through the day without using some of these products. Um, and so the nicotine has already um, caused changes with their brain. And especially the developing brain is important to keep in mind. Um, and then you go to, you know, the whole other end of the spectrum, which, you know, there were cases of e-cigarette or vaping use associated lung injury, which resulted in hospitalization and serious medical condition in which a person's lungs can get damaged from the inhaled substances. But not only short-term, we're also talking about long-term. And if you get kids hooked on these products, and then they're more likely to use tobacco products into adulthood, there's a whole host of um, of health issues that can occur as a result of that throughout their life. Mm. Well, before we go, can you tell me about the, what is it, Live Vape Free program? Of course. So I think the good news is that there's help available. Um, and so specifically for teens, the Live Vape Free is a text-based e-cigarette cessation program. So young people can text Vape Free NC to 873373 to join. I'll also mention that we have a quit line, um, quit line in C, which provides free 24-7 support to any North Carolina resident who needs help quitting and offers different forms of help to quit. And so there's different ways to get connected with that resource, whether it's calling 1-800-QUIT-NOW, visiting the website, quitlinenc.dph.ncdhhs.gov, or texting READY to 34191. Well, thank you so much for this update on this very important topic. Dr. Kelly Kimple, Senior Medical Director for Health Promotion with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Division of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. After the break, we'll hear from the author of a new book that explores Black communities and the politics of age in the antebellum South. This is Due South. (music) 
You're listening to Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. Seniors have long held a place of reverence in Black families. Whether the family matriarch commands the comings and goings in the kitchen or the family's eldest male is automatically designated to bless the food at a cookout or reunion, the oldest members of Black communities are honored and respected. But have you ever considered how far back that practice of deference goes? In his new book, Black Elders, The Meaning of Age in American Slavery and Freedom, Frederick C. Knight explores the timetable, the timeline, of the Black community's reverence for its elders. Well, Professor Knight is a professor of history at Morehouse College, and he joins us now. Welcome to Due South. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start our conversation where you began the book with 17th um, century West Africa. What can you tell me about the role elders played there? Oh, well, there's no doubt that elders played a particularly important role in West and West Central African societies. Of course, those societies change over time. We can't have a static understanding of African history But even with that, we know that from the earliest encounters of European traders and missionaries on the west and west central African coast, that they had to engage with elders. They engaged with them in commercial relationships. If they needed to engage in trade, then they had to go through elders in order to do that kind of uh, political and social engagement. Um, So that's one element, a role that they played. Uh, Another element, a role that they played was in ritual and religious life. We know that from certain West and West Central African cosmologies that ancestors were particularly important to them. And um, among some people, among many people in West and West Central Africa, there was a sense that because the elders were the closest to the ancestors, that there was a really fine line between those two. In fact, in some conceptions, elders were considered to be ancestors and ancestors were considered to be elders. So whenever anything needed to be done, whether marriage needed to be performed or whether new land needed to be cleared, there was a sense that elders played a particularly important role in blessing those kinds of ceremonies and such. So going back, you know, you note that you know, the Atlantic slave trade created a, a new context, like for old age. So in, in what way did that happen again? Uh, of course, the Atlantic slave trade was principally a, a, a traffic in young people. And that's one of the central dimensions, I would say, of the African diasporic experience. And that is, it was a traffic and movement of young people into new world contexts, which meant a couple of things. One is that there was a devaluation of the old people because they were not deemed by European slave traders as well as American planters as being as valuable to material and uh, commodity production in the Americas. So it was a material devaluation of of elders. And one of the terms that they used was that they were looking for people in their prime, of course, looking for people essentially between the ages of 15 and 25. And so that's one. There was a sense that physical work uh, uh, old people cannot engage in. And then in the Americas, of course, uh, particularly in North America, over time, you saw a growing uh, increase in the number of old people. And so African-Americans 
had to reconstitute ideas and practices related to age as an increasing number of people who had been enslaved in the Americas grew into old age. And so that's the second major part of my story. So first removal from elders in Africa and then kind of a reconstitution or, or reestablishment of a community of elders on American plantations, principally looking at the American South. So the this Atlantic slave trade really fundamentally altered um, Black intergenerational relationships. Would you say that? Mm, absolutely. That's really, really fundamental to that experience of enslavement. And so the experience of enslavement was one of isolation. Uh, the, the goal was to extract as much labor as, from people as possible, particularly young people as possible. And so that was fundamental. And But uh, African-Americans fought really in the early years of enslaving the Americas to establish these intergenerational relationships, even in spite of those pressures that, was, that were placed upon them. So, for example, in the early, uh, early, 16th, uh, early 1700s, in the French Caribbean, there was a sense that young people had to accord respect to old people on uh, their estates. And so, again, even though there was this external pressure, there was uh, certain cultural practices that African-Americans would try to maintain. This is this is really amazing history. You, you would think we would know this already, but it's good to hear, you know, to hear where we get a lot of what we've become, you know, from. So, you know, once we kind of you move into the history of the Antebellum South and you write something that I found just oh my goodness, I'd never heard of age theft. You know, so can you describe that and the impact that it's had on Black individuals and families? Well, if we think about age as something that's fundamental to our identities, uh, oftentimes we take it for granted and we think about other identities like our gender or class or kinship identities. Age is really fundamental. When we were born is, is essential to us. But uh, in many ways, knowledge about that was largely denied to African-Americans during the period of enslavement. This is something that Frederick Douglass talks about in his narrative. Uh, he talks about the fact that he did not know exactly when he was born. It was a privilege that he was denied by his planner class, and he wondered why that was the case. And so uh, uh, there's a literary scholar by the name of Sarah Edelstein who describes such instances as, as age theft. And we see this throughout the records of the antebellum South. If you look at inventories, which is one of the ways we know about the presence of African-Americans during this time period, uh, these records were replete with errors, mistakes, mm. very, in some ways sloppy record keeping, which was just another way of dehumanizing and demeaning the enslaved population. Again, it, uh, it reinforces this idea of age theft. So when you mention you know, all that went on, and we, we go, we're talking about the plantation now and how it was built on this labor of young African people and even young African-American people. So what roles did elders still hold on the plantation? Like when they weren't able, you know, to um, actually build and, you know, cook and, you know, do the, the laborious things that the young folks did or were forced to do? Well, um, one of the things to note about uh, 
plantations, or as one historian calls them, forced labor camps in the Americas, that they were principally driven by productivity and, and the profit principle. And um, as in most modern uh, economic formations, plantations tried to make some profit on the margin. So the agent continued to work, not necessarily in the fields, but they would continue to do what we might think of as reproductive and other domestic type of labor. So one of the important roles that they played would be as caretakers to the young. Again, Frederick Douglass talks about the role of his grandmother, Betsy Bailey, as well as his grandfather, Isaac Bailey, who essentially served as his surrogate parents while his mother was laboring away on another part of his owner's estate. We have other examples of that, such as Charles Ball, who would eventually run away from slavery. His his, uh, grandfather, Old Ben, as he's described in Charles Ball's autobiography, uh, would take care of Charles Ball after Charles Ball's father had run away from slavery and his mother was sold. And so that's one of the roles that old people would play as caretakers of the young. And of course, this is an important role um, in terms of adding to the overall productivity of, uh, of a plantation, as well as providing material support and care to the young. They served as midwives. Uh, they would serve as, as, um, as cooks, uh, again, working closer to the domestic sphere, uh, there are records throughout the uh, archives in the American South that show the ongoing role. And to a certain extent, although not uh, in relation to cash crop production, still playing a role in maintaining the gears of the economic system of the South. You know, pretty much what you're saying is like the older enslaved people were pretty much, and I think you use this term, gifted to the adult children of even slaveholders, you know, as they married and started their new families. That, that that was also kind of hard for me to hear. Yeah, that's a fascinating case that because it says that old people didn't have the same amount of economic value that could be gifted to a family member to serve again as domestic labor, working in uh, rooms of uh, planners, uh, serving as nurses and the like. And so there was a sense that even uh, old people could had some, although not necessarily cash value, they still had some kind of economic and social value to the maintenance of the plantation household. And that's, that was a very difficult story to, to un- uncover. Mm. You mentioned Frederick Douglass a couple of times, the former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And he, he once wrote, you know, about the law of respect to elders. So I really want you to talk more about Frederick Douglass. Can you describe like his insights on that as well as really the limits to this law as he saw them? Yeah, and Frederick Douglass's statement in My Bondage and My Freedom, which is his second autobiography, which he published in 1855. And so what he says in this quote is that there's no people uh, who uh, accord a greater level of respect than the African, something to that something to that respect. And so what he's trying to get at is the sense that young people were expected to accord respect and show deference to their elders, mm-hmm. you know, calling elders auntie and uncle, even though they were not necessarily kin members, those kinds of terms were used to show that young people had respect for the aged. 
Now, of course, there were limits to that uh, law of respect. Uh, first of all, some some young people, I don't talk about this in much depth in my book, some people, young people did not necessarily want to obey um, their elders. And so there was some tension across generational lines. And some uh, young people, and we see this in Douglas's biography as well, became a little bit frustrated by some of the strict discipline that some old people on their plantations would impose on young people, including corporal punishment. And so Frederick Douglass draws something of a line saying that some elders perhaps did not necessarily deserve the respect to which they felt like they were, that those elders felt they were entitled. So that's another dimension of it. But more importantly than that, it's the larger political context within which old people function. And that is a context in which, although within the internal slave community, they were expected to receive respect within the context of the American South and the laws of the American South, there was very little protection for them. And so even as uh, African-Americans entered into the antebellum period, um, some of them uh, were able to get their freedom through a number of different means, the states in the American South had laws that would uh, require them to lead the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, these state laws did not necessarily exempt Black elders from being expelled, even though they had spent the lion's share of their working lives working on plantations and generating profits for owners. And so uh, although there were these uh, internal codes among African-Americans in terms of a law of respect, the broader political context of the American South and states like Virginia and North Carolina did not necessarily uphold those. Um, African-Americans, however, did use those ideas of personal respect in order to make certain claims and push the state uh, the state of North Carolina and Virginia and the like to uh, to show them some deference. But there was an ongoing tension between those internal dynamics of African-Americans and the external pressures of the state throughout the antebellum period before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I know um, during those times, you know, if a, a enslaved person even lived to age 50, you know, if they even made it um, to their 50s, you know, they were still you know, considered and seen in that um, that light, hopefully, you know, with their family and in those surroundings and just the hierarchy, you know, that um, they held, hopefully, and their their voice, you know, and, and what they had lived through and what they seen was still, you know, I'm in my 50s, and sometimes I don't want people calling me auntie, you know, I don't know, I don't think I'm seen as an elder, but, you know, we have to know that... Um, we have to know our history. That's what you're telling us. Yeah, absolutely. And so if an enslaved person reached the age, uh, and there's some questions about what is old age, and we can mm-hmm. have that discussion. But if a person had lived to the age of 50, that would have been exceptional uh, for that enslaved person, given the nature of forced labor, problems of child mortality, the problem of disease, injuries during work. And if one reached the age of 50, one would have seen a lot. If I had to give the book a different title than Black Elders, it may be The Trouble They've Seen because of the extent to which they would have seen a great deal in terms of labor, forced uh, separation of family members and the like. And because of that, they carried a kind of aura 
that they could project uh, within their communities. And they tried to use that to the extent to which they could provide some kind of protection as well as provide leadership within their families and their communities. I know our time is running out, but I did want to talk about Reconstruction, you know, just a little bit. You know, um, I guess you also you pointed out that Reconstruction failed to systematically address the specific needs of the Black aged. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And also, you know, if do you think that we still revere Black elders in the same way that we should, you know, historically? Mm-hmm. If we think about Reconstruction as a whole— the way that it was defined, generally speaking, in the American South and the United States, more generally speaking, was that freedom meant the freedom to make a wage, um, particularly after the there was a failure of land distribution among African-Americans as the grounds for African-American freedom. The sense was that in order for African-Americans to be free, they needed to say, sign a labor contract and uh That has a number of different issues as it relates to African-American empowerment, but that was particularly an issue for the aged because given the fact that they were not seen to be as productive as late of of a labor force as young African-Americans, it would push them to, in some ways, the economic margins to a certain extent. And so we know from the records of the period during Reconstruction that old people were paid less than younger people were. Um, and it, it created uh, strains among African-American family units who had to try to find a way without land, without much credit to make a living. And so that's one of the challenges. And so there was no systematic effort uh, to attend to Black elder care for the most part. There were homes for the aged that were established. One was formed in Philadelphia in 1865, and that became a larger movement that occurred throughout the South. And in fact, uh, Harriet Tubman's, one of her last bits of political work was to establish a home for the aged in upstate New York and Auburn, New York in the early 20th century. So it was a major gap and one of a, a number of failures of Reconstruction, even as African-Americans did show some signs of political and economic and social progress during that period. So that's number one. And as it relates to African-American elders today, this is a really complicated question. Certainly there has been some changes in the social and cultural mores of African-Americans over the last several decades. You know, if we think about changes in the number of African-American churchgoers, we think about the changes in the nature of the African-American church, there's going to be a different type of dynamic as a result of that. And at the same time, I would say you still see uh, the aged playing roles that were comparable to what we've seen in previous generations, particularly among family members that may have some strains. And so we see in, in some instances, grandparents still taking care of grandchildren. So that that's that's one that's one we might think of as carryover uh, an adaptation ongoing adaptation that goes on goes along with African Americans both cultural practices as well as the economic insecurity that we face. We we have learned how to adapt, improvise and ultimately bear responsibility for each other as best as we can given the resources that are available to us. So I would say that is in many respects still alive. It's a complicated story. I certainly could write a second volume on this uh, for sure. This has been a great um, history lesson, and it makes me think of um, those in my family that 
as as they say, gone on to glory. But man, do I need them today. I do not feel like an elder, <laughs> uh, even <laughs> at my age. But thank you very much, um, Frederick C. Knight. Thank you for having me. Up next, a triangle-based artist is now one of the youngest ever recipients of the Coretta Scott King Book Award. We'll hear from Dare Coulter after the break. This is Due South. Do South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. At 30 years old, triangle-based artist Dare Coulter is one of the youngest illustrators to ever receive the American Library Association's prestigious Coretta Scott King Book Award. The award honors African-American authors and illustrators of outstanding books for children and young adults. She earned the honor for her mixed-media artwork in An American Story, a children's book for readers age 4 to 8. The book, written by Kwame Alexander, tackles the very challenging history of slavery in the United States. Dare joins us to discuss An American Story, as well as some of her public artwork commissions here in North Carolina. Dare, welcome to Do South. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. That was so cool to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) We are so glad you're here. First of all, congratulations on your award. Uh, This year's winners were announced in January. I'm curious, was it a call or an email? And what was it like to find out that you were the recipient? Okay, for for what happened for me, my agent said, hey, there's this thing, I want you to watch this. And I was like, cool. So I watched it last year. And the big stuff happens on a live stream. You're you know, finding out that all these awards happen in the same space. Um, when I'm a kid or when you're a kid, I remember looking at picture books and seeing the medals on the front of books mm-hmm. and understanding that they were important. Um, I do believe at some point our librarian ended up explaining like what the different medals were, but these are, this is the announcement of, of those things. Um, and so you have an understanding of the importance of them, but I, I don't think, unless you're in book world, I don't even know if most people realize that all of these are announced at a certain point in the year during the specific conference and that it's such a big deal um, to receive recognition at this event uh, for any any literary work. Um, but it really is very exciting because um, there, are, there are only a few of these given out per year. And so to be even a part of the conversation is exciting to be someone who's an honoree um, that's exciting to win. It's exciting. And, you know, I am so grateful to have been, um, had to have this work that, that, that I, I am so proud of be honored, um, by the Coretta Scott King committee. Well, you should be happy and proud. I know people just Thank hear the you. Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, uh-huh. man, there are a whole lot of other big awards out there. And this is not your yeah. first children's book illustration credit. First of all, you've worked on some great projects, like including Michelle Lanier's My NC from A to Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you enjoy about working on books for children? I enjoy the fact that they get to impact kids at a spot where they're developing they're developing themselves. They are absorbing things in the process of evolving into whoever it is that they're going to become. Um, to be able to meet a child there at that point is really special. Um, and it's special because you get to be part of their understanding of self. 
I think it's strange that people in, in the conversation about books, people talk about the bad things that happen to children and they're like, well, you know, I can't discuss this topic with my child because this is my child. It's like there are some children living some really rough lives. There are children who terrible things have happened. To. And so it's like it's not that life doesn't happen to kids because life happens to kids, too. And so to be able to be a point of positivity in the development of someone's childhood, you never know what someone's gone through. Um, I love that that's what books get to be. I love that that's the works that I that's what the works that I create get to be. Um, and obviously, when you have a manuscript like an American story that deals with something as difficult as slavery, that's not like this isn't like a feel good book that you're reading to your child right before bedtime. Um, but it does something else that's important, which is it opens the way for a conversation like there are difficult conversations you have to have with your children. And that's OK. I was going to ask you uh, what, what your recommendation would be for my children. I've got a five year old son and a two year old daughter. Just hearing you talk. This is a book that I am going to read to my five year old son. We'll yeah. figure out, uh, you know, it, when it is appropriate to, to kind of bring it to the two year old. But let's right. let's talk about the the imagery here, because an American story, which you are the illustrator of Derek Coulter here on Due South, is it's a striking book. It's a powerful book with powerful images and it toggles between past and present. And it aims to introduce, as you're talking about here, small children to the concept of slavery in America. How did you approach illustrating this story to this audience? Okay, so I have to say, I, I need to give props and credit where it is due to the brilliant, wonderful, phenomenal man that is Kwame Alexander. Um, the way that he wrote this manuscript, it had so much understanding of how these conversations would happen. And it's funny because when we went on tour, um, we went in on tour in January of last year after the book launch, which it was really awesome because he launched it here in Raleigh. When we go on tour, we're talking to kids in elementary school and middle school doing school visits. And the way that the kids ask the questions is the exact way that the questions are happening in the space of this book, right? Mm. Um, and so this manuscript is written in the exact way that children will have this back and forth conversation. So when you have a five-year-old um, and you have a two-year-old, two-year-olds, okay, y'all, I don't have no babies yet. I don't have no babies <laughs> because I'm trying to get this art stuff sorted and That's I'm wise. trying to figure Take out how I'm going to be 40 with 10 kids <laughs> and be all right because I don't know I don't want eight more for the record. I said I don't want eight more for the record. I've got two. Ten sounds. Ten sounds lovely. With and I don't want time eight more money. either. Yeah, even though that's kind of impossible. The babies are big, but always no, the babies. No, ten sounds obscene. It just, it just, that's the number. I'm like, this is it. This is what we're gonna make happen, right? Um, because my grandma, my my mom is one of eight kids, and I was like, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, and everybody I tell that I want 10 kids is like, hey, you don't even have one. How about you have one first and see? And I'm like, you know what? Honestly, valid. Um, so my niece is two years old. And um, because I'm not around kids like that, I don't have really good concepts of their development. Um, and, you know, at what age stuff happens. So I feel like prior to my niece being born, if you would have said you had a two year old, I don't I don't know developmentally where I would have thought they'd be at. But I know that a two-year-old can be cognitive. I know that a two-year-old can ask you questions. I know that a two-year-old is smart enough to try you. Like, you'll be like, hey, child, <laughs> this thing. And, like, kids at two are old enough to try to figure out how to, like, manipulate a situation. 
And, you know, this is that thing where you see them try and sneak stuff before bedtime, whether it's candy or something, or they go and they ask mom when dad said no to try and get a different answer. And they say, hey, I'm going to tell grandma. You're... So so it's not that kids being two means that they don't think, because when you interact with a two-year-old, you're having a conversation. It's back and forth. Like, it, it really is. It's 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 a discussion. Um, I would say that it's with a two-year-old. It's a very honest discussion. They're very honest at that yeah. time with what they, they want. That's why I have to ask you, dear, really about your research for this book, but yeah. really how did you learn about slavery as a child? Okay, so I went to school in the Fairfax County Public School System. Um, I am a very proud graduate of the, the Fairfax County Public School System. My mama took us up there. Um, when she and my dad split, she took me and my sisters up there because she wanted That's us Virginia? to That's Virginia? Where's that? Yeah, yeah Virginia. Yeah, Virginia. Um, and so she took us to Fairfax County public school system because it was the best school system in the nation at the time. And like in the last, however many years, it's always up there if it's not the top. Um, and so she wanted us to have the, um, the best education that we could, um, even with her being a single parent. And I know Virginia is complicated because Virginia is the same place where they published that book that talked about slavery as this, um, really kind thing where it's like you know the people came over on boats and like the the drawings have them in really nice clothes and they're smiling and they're like you know on i call that fine. williamsburg i didn't have a good oh, time when i went there yeah I'm just, man <laughs> no and it's like it's that thing you're and they're like well the 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 slave owners were like um the master and it is still the same language yeah. it's not we're not enslavers and and enslaved at that point so like the masters were kind to their slaves and right. you know they cared about them and there were sick days and it's like that's not there were no when state you rooms, go and re- right there were, i mean this right, is, this right, is right, an absurd right, not rewrite of right Right. Of what happened. Yes. And so when I learned about slavery, like I know that Virginia, Virginia is the place where that textbook is published and existed for however many years. But in my understanding of slavery, um, I was at a school that, you know, we, we learned straightforwardly that, you know, people were enslaved. They were taken from their homes um, and that it was there were systemic stuff that happened you know, beyond that point. And yeah. so for me, it's weird when people talk about the conversation and they're like, you know, well, y'all want white kids to feel bad about slavery. Nobody wants that. And like, that's not, it's not productive for one, but nobody's sitting there in these classrooms huddled up crying because, you know, these books are saying that white people are bad. That's, I think people want you to think that that's how slavery's taught, but right. it's never been taught like that. And so it's like, you know, for me, it was understanding, okay, that's, you, you're introduced to the imagery. Of course, you see the image of the man with the whipped back, um, my mom was very um, adamant about making sure that she was supplementing our education in other ways. Um, so, you know, we learned about the Amistad. It was just this comprehensive understanding that this bad thing happened. But mm-hmm. in the context of doing research for the book, it was really weird because I'm like, well, you know, I'm an adult. Of course, I know about slavery. Of course, I know about the imagery. Of course, I know about this and that and the third. And I end up, you know, knee deep in this material um and not only i do i learned about the kingdom of benin and um am then forward outraged like i kept seeing red when i was having this conversation because we find out about this kingdom that it was built there were 10 foot tall walls that were covered in mica powder they sparkled in the sun they were covered in sculptures um when you learn about the benin bronzes and that they had casting methods that rivaled the technology that we had today 
Um, and when you Google the Benin bronzes, bronzes, that's B-E-N-I-N, um, when you Google them, you look at the images of the pieces that they were creating at this time, like, it's mind-blowing because you have all of these people who, you know, after the point that these these kingdoms were decimated, um, and the Kingdom of Benin in particular, mm-hmm. there was a um, there was a royal a religious ceremony happening. Um, some representative of some country, um, so is a white country. Mm-hmm. Um, they came and they were like, "Hey, you know, we got to talk to the king." They're like, "Hey, king can't see you right now. It's a very special religious ceremony." And um, in retaliation, they burn it to the ground. You know, they steal all the things. They 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 demolish this kingdom. Yeah. Um, and you have this situation where people demolish a kingdom, demolish a history, demolish a people's cultural artifacts and all the things that they build, steal those pieces, and then 10 years later come back and say that there's no culture there. I don't think I understood the depth of you know the ramifications of slavery, but also the the weight of the the human um the human problems in it because I was learning as a child. Dare Coulter is with us here on Due South, and we're talking about a children's book that she is the illustrator of, An American Story. She received the prestigious Coretta Scott King Book Award for uh, her artwork, her illustrations within this book. And this book, as we're talking about, depicts the transatlantic slave trade, and there are honest and bare descriptions of the violence and the harm that the enslaved experienced. Some of these are just really powerful and striking imagery. I'm thinking of a, a two-page spread in particular um, where there are, are several wrists, six of them shackled together. And I'm wondering, we've got just a minute or so left, if you can give us a sense of how these images have been received um, by parents and by children who have uh, consumed and learned from this book. It's interesting to me the number of people who tell me that the book made them cry. The images look so real, Dare. I mean, I can see Thank that. You. It's it's like it's not like your regular normal illustration. It's like right. You, they're real people. Yes, and that, see, so this is why sculpture is important. So because I made the okay. If you haven't seen the book, if you Google an American story, you will see the illustrations. Or if you Google an American story art, you'll see that there are sculptures in this book. The reason I went with sculptures is because you you have people, I don't think that people considered that people who were enslaved were humans. And I, I think that's where the discussion gets weird because people talk about slavery as this thing in the past, like these aren't people's ancestors. And, you know, so so when you dehumanize people in a conversation about brutality, it makes it where no one has to answer for this thing that happened to people because suddenly this is a thing that happened to property. This is a thing that happened to people who didn't actually matter as far as history tells it, right? Um, so for me as an artist, it was important to make sure that I was working with a medium and because I can sculpt, I can sculpt something in 3D, ceramic clay is the closest to human that I can get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the closest to it being a photograph without it being a photograph. Um, and it's it, it makes it where there's humanity in it. And I say this because I think it's just a, an interesting fact. Like when you're working with ceramic clay, um, anything that's water-based, it is an organic material. So when you're working with it, you're sculpting a face at a certain point when you come back to, to resume your work on this piece, um, it starts to smell like skin. That had to be very emotional. Yes. And it's weird because you keep expecting these pieces to open their eyes. 
Mm. And it just, it's, it's jarring, but I think having the human element, um, the reason that you use sculptures in something like this is because it's necessary because so frequently in these conversations, the humanity of the people impacted by this horrible thing gets thrown away. Um, and it's like, you know, when people talk about the importance of having um, conversations about slavery without hurting people's feelings, what about the fact that an entire group of people was hurt and not just their feelings, their physicality, their their existence, their 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 descendants? You know, there are still echoes of this system that exist and impact people today. I'm really glad of the format of this book. It's almost like uh, it helps a teacher, you know, teach this very serious, important lesson to the classroom. So if they didn't know how to do it before, this is a guide that seems like it would be very um, helpful and and just very much needed. So I really just wanted to say thank you, Dare, um, for helping with this project and making it so beautiful. Dare Coulter is a professional sculptor, artist, muralist, and illustrator. She's also a 2024 recipient of a Coretta Scott King Book Award for her work on the picture book and American story. Dare, thank you for being with us. You're so welcome. And I do I have do I have can I have one more thing real fast? Yes. If you are in the listening area of Durham, North Carolina, keep your eyes peeled for a really exciting upcoming project. Um, I was selected to make the public art that's going outside of the former Will's Fun Park. It's just now going to be Will's Skating Rink. Please feel free to find me on social media um, if you would like to stay tuned to any of that or be a part of it. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dare Coulter. That's D-A-R-E-C-O-U-L-T-E-R. I'm on Facebook as the same. And if you go to YouTube and search my name, you'll find a making of for an American story. Thank you guys so much. It was beautiful talking with you both. This is Due South. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Jeff Tiberi is my co-host, and I'm Leonida Inge. <laughs>